Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Uh, and as we come to the conclusion of the book of Jude, I'm thinking about offense and defense. I don't know, maybe it has something to do with March Madness, which has been very disappointing this year as a Carolina fan, but you know, it's still always exciting. And there's, there are these two proverbial sayings, you've probably heard them before if you've been around sports much at all. The first one is offense wins games, but defense wins championships, right? And of course it was a defensive coach or player that first said that. <laughs> Now, an offensive player coach was probably the first one to say the best defense is a good offense. So which one is it? Which is more important? Is it defense? Is it offense? And I think we would argue that to be a great team, a truly great team, you have to have both. And this applies to a lot of different situations. I was thinking about strategy games where you kind of have to be not only defensive, but also you have to be thinking about your opponents and their moves. And so uh, a card game that I grew up playing was Rook. Any of you Rook players? Anybody played Rook? Had a few in the traditional service? Yeah, all right, we got a handful. Okay, so in Rook, it's kind of like bridge in that you you make a bid and whoever wins the bid gets to kind of control that hand and they get to decide what color Trump is and this sort of thing. And so I was a very offensive, maybe offensive, but offensive-minded player in this game. I liked to win the bid, have the best hand, and control the flow of the game. Uh, The problem was my best friend, Nathan, was smarter than me. And he actually understood the value of playing defensively. And so on many occasions, it drove me crazy. He would let the bid go for way lower than it should have gone, just to give it away to somebody he knew could not win the hand. Because what happens when you win the bid, but you don't make it, is that you lose everything. You lose all of the points that you bid. And the other team still gets the points that they earned. And so it would drive me crazy. Uh, Lost many hands because of that, because I didn't understand that you need to have both an offensive and defensive mentality. The final example I'll give is warfare. And Paul's example of the armor of God in Ephesians 6. So most of the armor we understand is defensive. You have a shield, you have the breastplate, you have the helmet, right? You have these pieces of the armor that are defensive in nature. All around this idea of understanding the truth to protect against the lies of the enemy. But we have offensive weapons as well. The first one is the one that gets all the credit, which is the sword of the spirit, the word of God, right? The sword is used for the attack. But what comes right after it I think it gets left out too often, which is the idea of prayer. Paul talks about prayer right there in the context of the armor and then the sword. And then he goes on to say, we're praying on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And he's talking about what I would call battle prayer. Prayer is an offensive weapon for the person of God. You've got to have a good defense and a good offense. And I want to allow us to take this idea into the conclusion of the book of Jude, because as Jude sort of rounds third and heads for home as he concludes the letter, he's been giving us primarily a defensive strategy. 
He's been saying, look, there's these false teachers out there and they're, they're teaching a false gospel to you that you can live however you want. You can just presume upon God's grace and everything will be fine. You can live however you want. And the reason they preached that is because they wanted to live however they wanted. They understood grace as a sort of license to just sort of live however you please. And they were leading people astray. And so Jude builds this defensive strategy. He says you need to recognize who these leaders are. You need to recognize their way of life. You need to know how they live and what they practice and don't have anything to do with them. You need to defend yourself against these false teachings. But I think Jude also understood that you need to have an offensive strategy as well to be able to go on the offense. And that's what he gives us as we come to the conclusion But before he gets there, three quick verses. He reminds us this is sort of the heartbeat of his message. He says in verse 17, you need to be able to recognize these false teachers. Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers who follow their ungodly desires. They will try to divide you. They follow their mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. He says we need to remember. We should not be surprised by these false teachers. Don't be caught off guard by them. Look, Jesus told you they will come. There will be people who will persecute you, people who deny the message about me, people who insult you, people that are against you. They'll be like scoffers. You should expect it. It will happen. It happened to me. It happened to the prophets. It's going to happen to you. Don't let yourself be caught off guard by it. And so they, they will come. You need to remember the message. And then, of course, the apostles of Jesus carried this message on. Paul said in his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Beware, they will come. And he characterizes them three ways. First, he says, they're scoffers. They mock the truth of God. They make light of God's standards and his holiness. A voice or scoffers, their disagreement, ridicules all who stand against them and actively recruits others to join their side. There will be scoffers who mock God and his message. They will be divisive is the second word he uses. And how are they causing division? They're causing division by teaching unsound doctrine. And isn't it interesting how this works? That that often in history, it's those who actually stay true to the traditional values, if you will, who end up getting labeled the divisive ones because you break away because the standard human trajectory often is to turn away from God. And so by holding to the truth, you actually end up getting labeled divisive. But the truth is, Jude says here, no, it's those who teach the false doctrine. The false doctrine is what is divisive. You're just simply holding fast to the truth. So don't let them characterize you as being the one who's divisive. No, they are in fact breaking away because true unity is found in believing the truth, right? That's where the best unity is found. It's developed around a clear identity. So they are the ones, they're being divisive by breaking away from the true gospel. Thirdly, he says they're immoral. 
Again, that's been an argument all along. Pay attention to the fruit of their lives. Don't follow somebody or like someone or listen to them just because they sound good or you like what they're saying or they appear to be successful. They demonstrate good leadership. They're compelling. They're winsome. But the fruit of their life is rotten. Don't listen to them. Don't be drawn away. Look at not only their message, but at their life to see that there is consistency. So Jude offers this final portrait one more time to say there's false teachers. They're out there. You need to be able to identify them. This is our defensive strategy. But you need more than defense. You need offense. You can't just hunker down and sort of hold hold fast. You need to be growing as well. You need to have an offensive strategy. And that's what Jude gives us, a kind of roadmap for nurturing a healthy Christian faith, starting in verse 20, a vision for renewing our faith. Now, I'm going to nerd out here for just a minute on grammar. So in the original language, it's hard to see in English, but the primary verb in this section is keep. They're in verse 21. Keep yourselves in God's love. Keep is the primary action. From that, there are three different action words that are helping verbs, if you will, in English. They're, they're secondary and they're there to support the main verb. So how you keep yourselves in God's love is by doing three things, building, praying, and waiting. So building, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. This is many ways. It's through worship and practicing the spiritual disciplines, but primarily it's by building a solid foundation of our lives on the gospel and on the truth of scripture. Right? That's why we're doing this Bible reading plan. And it's hard, isn't it? There's days when you're bored. There's days when you're appalled. There's days when you're frustrated. There's days when you don't understand what it's talking about. There's days when you do understand and you wish you didn't understand what it's talking about. The Bible's honest. The world is a mess because of sin. It's hard to read it sometimes. It's it's like Pastor Dan said, it really is HBO. You know, there's a lot of rated R stuff in the Bible. I mean, it's just crazy how human beings, how we can get off track apart from God's grace. And so we need to build our lives. We need to build ourselves up in the faith. And we need to build up one another. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up, just as you also are doing. The first step is building our lives on God's truth, building each other up in the faith. The second thing is praying. Again, does it sound familiar? It sounds a lot like the offense that Paul talks about in the context of spiritual warfare, right? The truth, the sword of the Spirit, building yourselves up in the Word. Secondly, praying and praying in the Spirit. And I think what Jude is talking about here is, is prayer that is Spirit-empowered. It's Spirit-led. It's Spirit-directed. There are some who have taken this phrase, praying in the Spirit, and have equated it with speaking in tongues. I think Paul, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's just simply saying prayer that is spirit-led. Again, you, you all have heard me. I believe that tongues is a gift, but we've, we've kind of inserted it into places where I don't think that's really what he's talking about. There's nothing in the language here that suggests that praying in the spirit means praying in other languages. He doesn't use that word. He says pray in the spirit. I think he's talking here simply about praying with the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the Word of God, which is in the Spirit, right? The Father and the Spirit are not going to be contradicting one another. So we're to be praying. And the third challenge is waiting. Waiting. 
Waiting is one of the most common themes in the Bible. There's a lot of waiting. Waiting on God to move. But this waiting, it's not a passive waiting. It's not sitting around bored uh, in the waiting room. You've got to check your phone because we're compulsive, like I'm bored. It's not that kind of waiting. It is an active waiting. It is a standing firm. It is a hopeful, watchful waiting. Waiting is part of how we build our faith. We're, we're waiting on God. We pray. We know the truth. We seek God's will. And what do we do? So many times we wait. We wait on God. We wait. We actively wait. We grow in his word. We pray in his spirit. And we eagerly wait for his coming. Now here's the thing. This is just one of those messages where I have to remind you that I really only have one message. I just preach it using different examples from different parts of the Bible. It's all the same message, right? How do we, how do we grow in our faith? It's the things that you know to do, but yet we struggle to do them. We need encouragement. We need reminders because we forget, we get discouraged. And so here I am. I mean, it's, it's, like the cliche of all cliches, the pastor's telling us, again, how do we grow in our faith? We read our Bible. We pray, right? And we wait. And we hope in God and we trust in God. But that's, that's the plan. That's how we grow. We do that in the context of brothers and sisters in Christ who do it with us. But that's how we keep ourselves in the love of God. We keep ourselves on the straight and narrow. We live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's by building ourselves up in the faith, reading the word, studying the word, prayer, and watchful waiting. And so in this next section, he gives us some instruction, some encouragement regarding those who have been drifting. Here's what he has to say about rescuing the drifters. He says, first of all, be merciful to those who doubt. Deal gently with those who doubt. This is an important word for the church because I think the church in general doesn't have enough space for doubt and wavering and, and questioning and struggling. Right? Again, if you've been reading through the Bible with me, there are places where you struggle. If you're not struggling, you're not asking the honest questions. There are times when we doubt. We doubt God's power functionally as a result of the fruit of our lives and how we try to take control of situations. We all doubt and we want to be dealt with gently. We want to deal gently with those who doubt. And I think one of the reasons why we do this is because of the golden rule. We would want others to treat us in the same way because there may be a season in your life when you are the one who is drifting. And you would want others to deal with you gently and mercifully and to draw you back in, not to make you feel shame, not to make you feel stupid, not to be surprised by the struggles or the doubt or the things that you're going through. You could be the drifter. And that could be for many reasons. It could be because you got bored, because you just lacked discipline, you drifted away from the faith, you drifted away from the Christian community. There could be some event in your life that's caused you to struggle and to doubt and to drift and to waver. It could happen to any of us. We're to, we're to deal gently, mercifully with those who doubt because there's space. God is big enough for those questions, those hard questions. 
Second, he says, deal quickly with those in danger. He gives us this dramatic image here. It's like Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Like he says, snatch those from the fire who are in danger of the fire. What is he talking about there? I think he's saying those who are drifting and who appear to be wandering away from the faith. And he says, look, don't move slowly. Still mercifully, but don't move slowly. Quickly draw them back in. Those who appear to be turning towards these false gospels, turning away from God, he says very quickly move in their life to try to bring them back in. Now, we all know there's risk involved in that because sometimes we reach our hand out to help someone who has fallen and they still have to take that hand. They still have to welcome that invitation and sometimes they don't. But we're still called to extend that hand to try to quickly reach out to those who appear to be wandering away and drifting. And third, he says, deal deal carefully with those who are corrupted. And this, this third group involves those who have been actively corrupted by the false teaching. And he says to these others, show mercy, however, mixed with fear. Mixed with fear. Being careful about even your association with that corruption. So, There's a tension here, and it's just the tension that Jesus laid out for us. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. That's hard. That's a challenge. In fact, it's easier sometimes to just pull back and insulate ourselves. But we can't be faithful to the mission that God has given us to do that. And so we have to be in the world, not of the world. And to do that, there are times when we reach out to those who have turned away, who have turned to disbelief, who have turned to false beliefs. And we still reach out to them with mercy. We just need to be careful that that we're not pulled away ourselves. So to show mercy, but to do it cautiously, to have accountability, to reach out with others. So we deal with some gently, some quickly, and others carefully. But we must influence as many as we can. And I think the key here is, is reaching out to those who doubt, to those who struggle, to those who, who, are, who are turning away, who are wandering away, to the drifters. We need to ask for God's mercy. We need to pray for the discernment of the Holy Spirit that God might use us to help rescue them from the drift, which could happen to any of us. And in the final section... Jude's given us a lot of instructions about fighting for the faith and contending for the faith. And I think he puts one final word in here to sort of make sure that we have a balanced view of this. And that contending for the faith is not just this human effort to try to earn God's love and earn God's favor. To remember that contending and fighting for the faith is only within the context of a covenant faithful God who has made promises to us. And he is the one who holds us fast. He is the one who has secured our love. And so we can rest in God because he is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence. To direct us, he, to him who is able, not you, he will keep you from stumbling. In John 10, it records these words of Jesus. Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is just one of many verses which teaches the security of the believer, that God will preserve those who are truly in him. He will preserve us. God's sovereign mercy. 
And at the same time, we're also told to be involved, to contend for the faith, to reach out, to be used by God. It's both. And we can do this because we trust in our sovereign God and the power of his preservation, that he is the one that will keep us from stumbling. And to what end, right? What are we contending for? What are we preserved for? Well, to be presented before the throne of God in his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That's what we're fighting for. We need to be reminded of this vision of of where we're headed so that when we're in the midst of the battle and the fight for life and the messiness of life on planet earth because of sin, it gets discouraging. We need to be reminded constantly of the vision of where we're headed. You need to be reminded, believer, that he has the power to hold you fast, that he is the one who is faithful, that he will present you, believer, before the throne of grace, faultless. If you are in Christ, you can rest in God's power of preservation and secure in the promise of God's presence. As we think about this vision, this great joy of heaven, I just want to wrap things up by reading a little bit from Revelation chapter 19. There's a lot in Revelation, but what we get are these little snapshots of heaven. So here here are these words, and think about this. Think about this promise that one day you'll be presented faultless before the throne of God. Revelation 19, you you might even close your eyes if that's helpful. Just think about this beautiful vision of heaven. It says, Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. This is the vision. This is, this is where we're headed. This is what, what God is preserving us for and what we are contending for in the faith. And what do we say? What do we do? How do we respond to such an amazing promise? I think only by praising God. Praising God. By worshiping Him. By what we're doing here together in this space. And that's how Jude ends the letter. Verse 25 with a beautiful doxology. He says, To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Would you join me as we pray together? Father, we thank you that you are faithful. God, even when we are not faithful, you are. And you are good, and you are loving, and you are all-powerful. I pray that we would be reminded of that as we look at your word. As we pray according to your spirit and led by your spirit and you're filling us with your spirit, that we would be reminded of your power and your goodness and your grace. And Lord, even so, would you teach us what it means to contend for the faith? Would you teach us to discern what is true from what is false? Would you protect us from the lies of false teachers? Would you protect us from the lies of the evil one? Would you protect us from the lies we tell ourselves daily? God, would you heal us? Would you show us your truth and help us to walk according to your ways?
Would you convince us that that is the way of great joy? God, protect your church, preserve your church, help us to be faithful to you as you are faithful to us, and help us to have influence in our community, in our places of business, in our homes, in our city, and in our world, for your glory and for our good. Amen.